I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is wonderful in every possible way. Gaylong Tupton is a Buddhist monk, a meditation teacher, and an author. At the age of 21, he gave up the life of an actor and an artist and a bit of a party animal and ordained as a monk for what he originally intended to be one year. Today, 26 years later, he had spent more than six full years in intensive meditation retreats, the longest of which was one retreat that was four years long, which included five months of full silence. He has been trained by some of the world's greatest masters of meditation, and he is now regarded as one of the UK's most influential meditation teachers. Tupton contributed to Ruby Wax's most recent book, How to Be Human, and his own book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness, was a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller with editions in 10 countries around the world. So good to see you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan, even though I've only been introduced to you and your work when... um, when basically it was suggested that we meet. You know, I've had a very long journey with meditation. And when I hear you talk about it, I go like, wow, that actually makes sense. (laughs) Especially when you start inserting dopamine and cortisol and all of, it's like really, really eye-opening. But I don't want to start from there. I actually would love, love, love for my audiences to know you as much as I've learned about you. So... I was hoping to start from the beginning of your story, if you're open to this. Sure, um, of course. Being a party animal in New York. Can, can, <laughs> <laughs> can we start from there and, and see how we ended up here? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you were an actor. Yes. And a serious party guy, like a serious, well, right? Well, I kind of went off the rails in, in my late teenage years. Uh-huh. I mean, I grew up in a very stable family in, in England, and um, both my parents are Buddhist. And so that stability of Buddhism was kind of there in the background. But I never did anything about it. I never practiced it or meditated. But I kind of believed it in it in the back of my head. And then in my teenage years, I started to suffer from quite a lot of depression and anxiety and I was just constantly trying to find ways to run away from myself. And so living a really kind of excessive, wild party lifestyle was kind of my way of just like escapism and just kind of blanking out my thoughts and not having to face myself. And I was a musician and then I became an actor. I was very much into the arts and I was living in London. Then I moved to New York and I just wasn't looking after myself at all. I was just I was just going out all the time, drinking, smoking, not eating properly. I got very sick, but very suddenly. 
I mean, literally from one day to the next, I got incredibly ill. I woke up one morning thinking I'd had some kind of overdose or something because I was having heart palpitations Whoa. and couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And I went to the doctors and they said, you've had a meltdown, you've had a burnout. Your heart is beating too fast. You're very sick. I was actually sick for about four or five months. Um, wow. Like Physically yeah. sick. Yeah, yeah. Like from January till June. Yeah. I wow. was really sick. This was in, in 1993. So I was really shocked because I just kind of had fallen to my knees and didn't know what to do with myself, didn't know where to go or how to get better. But I knew that I had to stop living the life I was living. I knew I needed some kind of radical change. It really shocks me in so many ways, Doctor, because you talk to people and we all know that we get a little crazy in our 20s, right? And every single one of us knows that it doesn't work, yet every single one of us, when we turn 20, go crazy. I mean, where is the logic coming from? There is no logic. And I had friends who were telling me, we're worried you're going to die. We're worried you're going to get really into trouble, really sick. Sadly, it does happen, actually. So it we, does we happen. Yeah. But I remember feeling invincible. I thought, no, no, I'll be fine. Not me. Or, or just, I don't care. I, I just didn't think about things very deeply. I just didn't care. And I mean, then, of course, there's a massive wake-up call when your body stops you. Yeah. yeah. And that's what happened to me. And at the time, it was horrible. But looking back, I'm really grateful because it stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. And that's what got me into this path of meditation. It was a, a kind of radical shift through this explosion of stress and ill health. Mm -hmm. That's why I started meditating. What I loved about your story was you sort of like booked a, a monk vacation. I didn't know those <laughs> exists, by the way. I actually, when I discovered that, I was like, I need one of those. You, were, you found the place where you could sign up to be a monk for a year right? Yeah, yeah. Does that happen? I mean, if I go to Dharamsala next week and say, guys, I'm just here for a year, does that work or what? It might do. I don't know. I, I just know that <laughs> the, mon the monastery I'm part of, which is called Samuling in Scotland, it's a Tibetan monastery in, in the borders of Scotland. They had just started that year this system of one-year ordination where you can be a monk for a year, like a, a retreat. You go there for a year and you, you are a monk. Ah. Take that commitment for a year. And I mean, the reason I did this was because I was so ill and so unhappy and so frightened. And an old school friend of mine who knew about this monastery, she told me about it and she said she was going there to be a nun for a year. And I said, can I come with you? Wow. Can I do it too? She said, sure, come, let's go. This could be the solution for you. And I told my family and they were kind of surprised, but also relieved of that course. I was going to do something healthy yeah. with my time. And, and so I went to this monastery. I'd never been there before. I'd never even heard of it, but I went there and it felt completely right. It just felt like such a pure place and so relaxed and spacious. I mean, it's not like there was no sort of people telling you what to believe or what to think. It was very much you find your own way. But there was this opportunity to become a monk and there were a whole bunch of young people, many of whom had kind of burned out like me at an early age. And they were all taking these vows for a year. So I, I think I'd been there for four days and that, suddenly I, then I became a monk. Wow. Going in, did you actually think you were going to last a year? 
I thought I'd last a year. I thought it's a year and it's not longer than that, so it'll be all right. And my friend was doing it too, so I felt supported. And very quickly, I made friends with the people there and the other monks and nuns. And we were like a, a family together doing this thing. And we were learning to meditate. We took these vows. You know, you wear the robes and you take vows of celibacy and no intoxicants and all the other monks' vows. And that's the discipline that kind of holds you in, in place while you're doing this training. And yeah, most of my friends did the year and then finished, but I stayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I did. think they were surprised. Yeah. They were surprised. <laughs> they, they were surprised, but I stayed. At the end of the year, I. I remember just before the year was ending, I thought, no, I, I want to try more. I want to do another That's year. That's amazing. It's such a strange, it's a, such a big shift. You take a life that is completely convinced that it should go in a certain way. And then you go like, no, 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 hold on. I'm going the exact opposite way. You know, yeah. retreats, being a monk, taking vows, massive shift. Well, I wonder if it's part of my extreme nature. Maybe I'm a very extreme hmm. person. So if I'm going to be doing parties and all of that, I'll go all the way. I'll be so, so excessive. And then maybe I swung to the other side and I'm going to now try and do meditation, but I'm going to really go all the way. I'm going to be a monk. I'm going to live in a monastery. I'm not just going to go to a class in the city. I really want to immerse myself. And I'm not saying that's the only way. I respect all people's choices and paths. But maybe for me, I need something quite extreme. It's not really extreme when you're doing it, though, because it's a relaxed lifestyle. I mean, living in the monastery, it's disciplined. You have to get up early. You have to meditate and do all of those things. But those things are relaxing. Meditation is relaxing. It's kind of work, but not work at the same time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It's good work. Let's call yeah. it that. And yeah. I started to feel towards the end of that year that I was starting to scratch the surface of my own mind and discover more about myself. And I think my initial move into the monastery was almost like rehab. And it was just for health reasons. But now this kind of spiritual feeling started to arise, this feeling of wanting to study further Buddhist philosophy and do the meditations and practices. So I decided to stay longer. I took vows to stay another year. And then in that second year, I went into retreat on my own. I went into a, a nine month long retreat Oh, wonderful. Is that nine months of silence? Yeah, more or less. Oh, wow. I, mean, I had a little bit of talk with the people who cook and bring food in. Basically, you're alone and silent. Oh, uh, wow. And dur so during that nine months of retreat, that's when I started to really this, my whole world was kind of turning upside down in my mind. And I was thinking, well, what am I doing with my life? Am I going to stay and do this? Or am I going to go back to New York and carry on? being an actor or whatever, am I going to have a family? What am I going to do? And this, the nine months were a lot of kind of soul searching. And I really started to feel that for me to stay a monk full time, lifelong would be, would be helpful for me. But also it felt like this is a way I could do something that might be useful in the world. Oh, totally. I could help people. Maybe I had totally. that feeling that this could be a, a compassionate choice. Oh, totally. Such a wonderful choice. So after that retreat, I eventually became a lifelong monk, and that's now 26 years ago. I don't know if that's the right use of word, because the word envy has negative connotations to it, but I totally, like, it's such a wonderful way to go through life, honestly. I mean, it is, it's a very different choice, but sometimes I tell myself, 
but it's the right choice. Really, I mean, if life was a journey about really, really connecting deeply to yourself and having the compassion to other beings, there's probably no better path, right? I mean, this is it. I don't know, no better path. I don't know. I, I have friends who meditate really intensively and they're not monks. They're living a very spiritual life and they, they are not monks, but they are doing huge amounts of meditation and also helping other people. So it's not that it's the only and best way, but for a certain type of personality, interesting, it maybe is. And so for me with this quite extreme nature and and also, I've always found discipline incredibly hard. I've always been a really lazy, undisciplined, messy, oh come on, kind of wild person. And so, maybe having a, a lifestyle which can contain me and hold me in a, on a path that so I want to follow, maybe that's what suits me. It's quite significant when you say that certain traits, like being you know extreme or obsessive about doing things, can actually be used in our favor. If you become obsessive about doing something that is good for you and or good for others, then that's definitely a very good trait if you want, right? It's not what the trait is, it's what you fill it with. Yeah, I think so. You can transform your habits into something more useful. And that slightly obsessive, slightly intense side of me has maybe helped me, driven me into this kind of monastery life, being a monk. But then also it becomes a problem when you meditate. So then I discovered yeah. that when I started meditating, that obsessive nature in myself made the meditation very difficult at first. When I did that nine months of retreat, I was trying to do it all perfectly. And I was trying to, I had so much ambition about meditation. I'm, I'm going to do this properly. I'm going to really, really, really do this. And then there's a lot of tightness in the mind. And then you're meditating with a lot of greed and attachment and expectation and the meditation became really, really difficult and really stressful. So I started to suffer a lot. And looking back, I can see that it's that obsessive side of me and that grasping side of me, that side that wants to feel good all the time, wanting to, to feel great, wanting to feel happy. So then meditation becomes like taking drugs. You're trying to get high addictive. on the meditation. Addictive. I heard you say that once and it was really eye-opening for me. You said, I became an addictive meditator. Like you, yeah. you're meditating for the high. Absolutely. That's what I was doing. And it's quite interesting to see what happened to me because I, I, the more I meditated, the more miserable I became. And I started to wow. really question wow. the whole thing. I thought, wow, I've, I've now I've become a monk. I'm meditating. It's making me incredibly unhappy. I started to think I'd made the wrong choice or... <laughs> uh -huh. Buddhism was bad for me or meditation was dangerous. All these questions were coming up. And then through talking to my teacher about it, he said, it's nothing to do with Buddhism or meditation. It's simply to do with the way you're approaching it. You're approaching this like somebody taking drugs. You're sitting down and meditating and waiting to get high. And so because there's that grasping attached aspect to what you're doing, you're, you're going to feel disappointed because you're not getting the high you want. And so you feel let down all the time. And, and he started to explain to me that meditation is about just being in the moment, whatever that moment is, without judging. It's not about feeling anything. It's just about being where you are and what you are. And that's a kind of acceptance. That's a letting go that is, I found that very threatening and very I couldn't imagine how to do it, but I started to work with it and I started to change my approach. And 
I mean, now when I meditate, I'm almost at the other end of the extreme in that now I'm, I just don't care whether it works or not. I'll just do it. I'm not really trying to make it feel a certain way. I just, I do it every day and I, there's much less of that grasping in it. And that makes it possible to keep going. Otherwise you're trying to climb a mountain all the time and not sure where the top of that mountain is. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to you to this point. As a matter of fact, of all the things I've learned from you, this was the point that I believe was the most eye-opening. But let's come back to it in a minute. I just want to take that idea of addictive meditation, if you want, and maybe touch on a sensitive topic where, you know, sometimes it's referred to as spiritual hacking. You know, people who are trying so hard to be spiritual in a way that sometimes it actually is not genuine or is it's not fitting their personality at the time yet. You force yourself to wear certain things or mix with certain groups or act in a certain way or repeat certain words and love and light and all of that. And, and maybe it's not fit yet. How does one know, you know, if you're actually making the right choices, if you're progressing in your spiritual path or just grasping onto habits and cults, if you want? I agree with you that it's very easy to fall into a kind of trap of, I mean, some people call it spiritual materialism, where we've been shopping around looking for shiny material objects, and now we just transpose that onto the spiritual path. Such an interesting term, yeah. And that can happen. And, and then we start to become, like deliberately try to imitate what we think a spiritual person is. So we start talking in a weird voice, and we start being a bit floaty and a bit sort of you know what I mean? Sort of misty eyes and, and talking about spiritual matters and taking ourselves very seriously. And, and I'm sure I've been through those phases and I can see it happens to many people. But then you kind of come through it when you start to really study the teachings of meditation. I mean, there's a lot of philosophy there, a lot to understand. And one of the main things I, I was told is that you know you're on the right track if you're thinking about yourself less and you're thinking about others more. So if your compassion is growing, then it means your practice is progressing. And I think that's a really good marker. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise we could get very wrapped up in ourselves. Like I'm on this spiritual journey and I'm going to be so special and so wonderful. It becomes an ego trip, doesn't it? It really does sometimes. Yeah. Although I definitely in my heart have a huge love for everyone. But sometimes it's actually a very sensitive conversation when you face someone and you sort of want to tell them your intention is amazing, but don't rush into it. You don't really need to pretend that you're somewhere when you're not there yet. It becomes an ego. It's almost like what you said. It's like you used to wear a specific suit to make yourself look like a businessman. Now you're wearing a different suit that makes you look like a spiritual person. But if you're not there yet, you're not there yet. And I think the idea of compassion, this, this is interesting. So are you saying that all spirituality will end up in compassion? I think so. I think love and compassion are the essence of all spiritual paths. And if you read the teachings of all the major religions, they, they always talk about love. They always talk about service and compassion and being less self-centered. That's a, a universal truth. And also, even outside of the world of spirituality, just in normal life, we all know that, that kindness and compassion are the, the highest virtues. They're what we are drawn to in people. When somebody's kind and compassionate and not so wrapped up in themselves, we see that as a good person. That's somebody we want to connect with. 
whether they're spiritual or not, it doesn't matter. It's just, are they kind? Are they thinking about themselves less and thinking about others more? That's a really beautiful quality when we see that in somebody. And it's something we can cultivate in ourselves too. And I think that's the whole point of practicing any spiritual path is to become more kind and less selfish. You seem to have taken then, at least I heard you say that once, that you were on sort of the fast track of monkhood. It's like, you know, they send you out there very quickly to teach and then, you know, you were sort of uh, advancing in your, I don't know what you call it, learning if you want, or study. No, I never say that. I've never considered myself to be on the fast track or, or, or advanced or anything. I do a lot of teaching. I give talks, I write books, I do a lot of that stuff. But I try to be as honest as I can about myself, which is that I'm still learning. I'm not a guru or a teacher or a lama or anything like that. I'm a monk and I've got stuff I can share with people, but I'm very much on this path with them. I'm not above anybody or better than anybody. I'm not qualified to be anybody's spiritual guide. I think the time I heard you say this was the time when you were referring to going back to retreat where you spent four years in retreat and then five months of them were in full silence or something like that, which to me was sort of like, okay, so I I tried, I tried, and then I went out there and then I realized I need to go back and practice again, right? Yeah, no, that's very true because what happened to me was after being a monk for about five years, the monastery asked me to start giving courses and classes and I started to travel around a bit giving talks and lectures and workshops in meditation And then after doing that for a few years, I started to feel a bit like a fraud. I felt a bit (laughs) like I was just just saying all this stuff, but I hadn't done much meditation myself. I mean, I'd done some. I'm a monk and I was meditating every day, but I felt I was sort of getting ahead of myself and I needed to go deep and go into into more serious practice. So the opportunity came up to do a four-year-long retreat. It's a a group thing. I mean, you, you go in with a group of 20 other monks You're alone most of the time in your room, but it's a group set up in a retreat house on an island off the coast of Scotland. So this chance came up and I I went for it. I thought, this is, I need to go deeper. I need to uh, spend time really training my mind. If I'm going to help anybody, I've got to do more practice myself. So I went into that retreat in in 2005. I think there is a a very... um very honest relationship between you and you. It's something that is quite admirable. I mean, you keep saying, I'm not there, I'm not there. But honestly, I mean, you're teaching so many of us and you're obviously somewhere, but you seem to keep going back to, no, no, I still have to do some work. I still can do better. And you seem to have done that many times in your path, if you want. Well, I have been very fortunate to have been trained and continue to be trained by very amazing teachers. My own teacher, Akon Rinpoche, who who passed away sadly a few years ago, and then his brother, Lamieshi, who's still with us. They've been training me all these years, and their key message is humility and being real about yourself and, and being real about where you are and not getting onto a spiritual trip. So I think that's helped me to put things into perspective and It is a danger. If you're teaching meditation, you can get on a bit of a pedestal and think you're something special and people look up at you as if you must be a great master of meditation. I'm sure that happens, those kind of projections. And I've been very careful not to buy into that and to be really honest about myself and be really honest with other people about where I'm at. I think that's crucial. 
Yeah. Really, really important. There are many practices I'm not allowed to teach because I haven't done retreats on those practices. I'm allowed to teach practices. I've done long retreats meditating on those practices, but I'm not allowed to teach certain practices because I'm not ready to, and I'm, I'm not allowed to do certain practices I'm not, I'm not ready to. So there's a, definitely a sense of where I'm at and being honest about that. Very admirable. Let's jump into meditation. I think that's the fun part I was setting everyone for. So the biggest eye-opener for me, to be honest, is I'm not competitive in my life anymore, but I, I set targets. I want to progress. I, you know, my background is in business, so there is always like a, another thing that you need to achieve and so on and so forth. And when you taught me that, that meditation is actually not about getting to that calm mind, it's about the process if I remember correctly, you called it, it's a bit of the attempt to focus and then your mind wanders and so you notice. So that concept is really interesting. It's not about being totally calm. It's about attempting to be calm. That works for meditation. It's a bit like going to the gym. It's an exercise. So you're not trying to force yourself into a particular state of being, like, totally calm or or some people have this this idea that meditation means you you have to clear your mind and empty your mind and have no thoughts and be in a kind of trance like state and that's not true it's it doesn't work like that and if you try to force yourself to be calm you've already tripped yourself up because there you have two opposites that don't go together forcing and calm you can't <laughs> yeah calm yeah. can only arise if you allow it to naturally arise. And so actually the meditation process is, as you mentioned, it's about getting lost and coming back again and again, getting lost, coming back, getting lost, coming back. And when people understand this, they find meditation much easier. People find it difficult because they struggle with their thoughts. Yeah. You sit there meditating and then the mind is doing all kinds of other stuff, wondering, thinking, planning, remembering, and you can feel like a complete failure. And Especially That's the if whole quite, point. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're quite an ambitious person and in your work life, you're very much used to setting targets and achieving goals and being rewarded for those goals. That mentality then invades your meditation practice. It can be like that, can't it? And you, you want to do it right and you don't want to have a wandering mind. You want to be in the moment and you get really frustrated. But I always explain to people that you're sitting there meditating. Maybe you're focusing on your breathing or a mantra, or a visualization. There's all these different techniques, but breathing is the most common one, isn't it? You're focusing on your breathing, and then, yeah, your mind starts to wander. You start thinking about all kinds of other stuff, but the key point is to then return to the breath. Yeah. And every time you return to the breath, you are, you are getting stronger. So it's the returning again and again that makes you more mindful and more aware. That's the exercise that you repeat again and again. So it's not really about aiming to feel a certain way or be a certain way. It's just about getting on that treadmill and doing the exercise, coming back again and again. That is so profound. And the analogy is so eye-opening because I'll tell you very openly, lots of you know the people I talk to who don't really meditate regularly, it's because they feel like failures. They feel like I'm trying to do this thing and I keep missing the target, sort of. And to understand that the target is not to be calm, that target is to exercise, to do it again. I think the analogy to the gym is fantastic because what you do at the gym is you're trying to get your muscle to fatigue. 
So you're basically trying to push a little more than your capabilities, right? And when you manage to do that, you've exercised the muscle to tell it to become stronger. So the idea is when you notice that your mind is wandering, you know, you're aware and then you come back. And that is amazing because then it's just an exercise. The results don't matter. It's the more often that happens, the more exercise you've got. Yeah. And also, if you understand that process, it changes your relationship with your thoughts because very often people who meditate, when their mind wanders, they feel like a failure and they think their thoughts are bad and their thoughts have ruined the meditation. But if you understand that the whole point is to just keep coming back to the breath, you have to have somewhere to come back from. So those thoughts <laughs> that took you away, they are the very thing that enabled you to do this training. So they're actually part of the process. They're not bad at all. So through this different way of relating to the thoughts, you start to develop more compassion inside yourself because you're starting to have a more gentle, kind and accepting attitude towards your own mind. You're not battling with it or trying to chase your thoughts away. And this is how meditation starts to develop into a sense of self-acceptance and inner peace. So allow me to ask you a few very personal questions. This is not for my audience now. This is for me to learn. So a couple of things really get to me when I meditate. I, by the way, I absolutely love the process. And I'm telling everyone that because there were points in my life where I was that engineer that basically said, you know, there are other things you can do. I definitely tell everyone that meditation is indispensable. It's an important part of everyone's life. Two things really sort of like don't feel right to me. One is why do we set a time? I mean, aren't we supposed to be sitting in the moment? Why should I plan 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes? Why? Shouldn't I just do as long as I can? Well, the problem with that is if you just kind of let it be and just see how it goes, is it becomes very difficult to build up a daily practice because on one day you'll do like two hours, next day you'll do two minutes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, it mm. becomes very messy. And if you don't set yourself a time, what happens is the ego tends to take over and start to create reasons why you should stop meditating. Like you sit there and then you think, oh, I really should just go and uh, write that email or I, should, I need to tidy up the kitchen or I need to clean the house. Any distraction just takes you away. But on the other hand, if you've made a strong decision that you're going to do 10 or 15 minutes, whatever the time is, 15 minutes, no matter what, that keeps you there. When you're, you want to jump up and stop the session, you won't because you have to finish your time. Mm. It's a little mm. bit like going to the gym. I mean, if you go to the gym and lift weights and you just think, well, as soon as it hurts, I'll stop. You don't. You think, no, I'm going to do 20 reps or I'm going to do, I'm going to do the, whatever your trainer has told you to do. You'll push through a bit and do it. Otherwise, laziness kind of takes over. So the key point with meditation is to learn how to do it every day. And I think it's easier to do it every day if you create a schedule with it that you will do a certain amount of time each day and that kind of holds you that discipline holds you i know most of my listeners will just take whatever you tell them now and do it so what do you think is a good practice every day 10 15 20 25 minutes i think starting with 10 minutes is good for a beginner because you don't want to crash and burn you know if you if you do two a really long session then you find it so difficult you're never going to do it again but just doing 10 minutes a day is really manageable and once you've achieved being able to do that every day you can start to extend it 
So after a few weeks, you might start doing 15-minute sessions, 20-minute sessions. I know people who, who've been meditating for maybe a year or so, and now they really love to do a 30-minute session a day. They've kind of built up to that. But they started small. Yeah. So I would start with 10 minutes and then slowly expand it. The other thing is I think it's good to, to do it every day, but maybe not to give yourself a hard time about what time of day you do it. Mm. You know, for some people, it works really well that you get up in the morning and you meditate first thing. But for other people, if they set themselves a time, like, okay, I will do it at 7 a.m., and then you miss your session for the day, something in you says, oh, I'll try again tomorrow. But actually, it would be more useful just to do it at some point that day. So I I do it like that. I just make sure I do my practice every day. I don't don't set myself a time I have to do it. I do the same, actually. So to me, it has to happen once a day. And because you know your day, some days it will be in the morning, some days it will be during your lunch break, some days it has to be before you go to bed. And after a while, you start to realize your own habits. You know, the meditation that I do right before I go to bed is a little more difficult because I'm tired and so on and so forth. So I might as well do it a little early. And I think everyone should adjust. But what I wanted to say is like 10 minutes is nothing. I mean, we spend so many 10 minutes doing things that are not good for us. So I'm asking people to seriously commit. Like, honestly, it's the best thing you can do. People can waste so much time. Just They can spend hours just scrolling through Netflix looking at what to watch but not actually watching yeah. anything you know what I mean exactly. and so so yeah. but doing 10 or 15 minutes of meditation every day is a life-changing thing that can completely transform transform you it's the secret to genuine happiness so it's good to make that commitment but yeah I think the important thing is to not bite off more than you can chew at first if you tell yourself you're going to do an hour a day you won't do it but if you tell yourself it's just 10 minutes you will and then you can build up from there. Yeah, yeah. Does it have to be breathing? So I find that I actually focus a lot more when I focus on other things. So the itch in my nose, for example, is my best meditation. It's like when my nose itches, I know this is going to be amazing today because that thing, I swear to you, I I go like, okay, I'm not going to scratch it. And for as long as it's there, I'm completely focused on that thing. I don't have a single thought in my head, right? And then the, you know, body awareness in general, even though I know from one of your teachings as well, that body awareness or sort of feeling your body is just one of the steps, but to focus on feeling parts of my body, especially if I have a, you know, a pain or a discomfort in my shoulder or whatever, that also gets me to completely tune in and return to that every time my my, um, thoughts wander. Does it have to be breathing? No, there are many techniques and actually you can use any of your senses. So focusing on the body can be the whole practice. It can be what you do the whole session, focusing on the body or also you can use sound, listening to sound. Yeah, I love using sound. Yeah. Even just traffic in the distance or a river or whatever sound there is around you, you can be the meditation or visual objects. What I try to help people with is to learn a range of practices so they can try each one and then discover the one that suits them the best. It doesn't have to be breathing. In fact, for many years, my main meditation was looking at the sky. Oh, I love that. Literally just looking at the sky and meditating with a sense of trying to feel the space of the sky and the thoughts and emotions are like clouds in the sky and you're just relaxing into the sense of openness. So there are lots of different techniques and it's good to 
try a few different ones and then settle maybe on one for a while. Not for your whole life. You, you might do different ones during your lifetime. Yeah. As you can see, I'm trying to frame people into this. So 10 minutes is nothing. You don't have to focus on your breathing. You can focus on anything. And by the way, you don't even have to be calm all the time. The idea is that your thoughts come in, we love them, and then we go back. So honestly, if you end this podcast and you still are looking for excuses, we don't know what to do with you anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> so, so Tuftan, there is one other thing I wanted to ask on my personal side. So one of the things I love when I watch you teach meditation is guided meditations actually take away from my focus. Because sometimes the guide speaks at the time when I don't want them to speak, right? Yeah. But you tend to be very, you speak very little, but you really take me there. I mean, is this normal? Is this how it is in the monastery? Is this... We had no guided meditation in the monastery. Right. No guided. The first time I meditated, we were just put there in a room. We had to do a session that was two hours long. And they ring a gong at the start and they ring a gong at the end. And that's it. There's no talking, no guidance, nothing. That's quite harsh. That's quite extreme. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I agree with you that guided meditation can become quite irritating if the guide is just talking the whole time. Right. Yeah. Then there's no space. There's no silence. There's no time to try the method. So I do sometimes guide people in the, in the session. I'll say a few things, but I leave long gaps so they can do yes. what I'm suggesting they do. Otherwise, the guidance becomes just a total crutch. You're not actually, you're just leaning on that crutch without actually being able to do the work yourself. So I, I have never done this in a podcast. I don't know if anyone has ever done this in a podcast, but why don't we do that? First of all, let me explain again something that I really loved because when I heard people do this before, there is a pattern, but you actually explain the pattern. So there are seven stages to your meditation. Can you take us through them quickly? And, and maybe I'll ask one more question and then ask you to actually show it to us. The first one is posture. Yeah, posture is really important. So you don't have to necessarily sit cross-legged on the floor like the, the yogis historically did. You can sit on a chair, but there has to be a sense of a straight back and sitting with a balanced posture. So you're sitting up straight, your feet are planted flat on the ground parallel, your hands are resting palms down on the tops of your knees. You can put a little cushion behind the base of your spine, you know, so you're, you have lower back support, but you're basically sitting up straight. And that's step one is good posture. Yeah. And it's not just about comfort. It's also about being stable, being in a pause that doesn't want you to move too much. So stillness is important. Stillness and a sense of physical balance and equilibrium that enables the mind to start to settle. And then the second one, establish compassion, is my favorite thing ever. I think we should talk about this a little as well, how you learned it, not just why we use it. Yeah, you're setting the intention. You're so step two is to take a moment to think, why am I going to meditate? And to really establish in your mind the reason you're meditating, which is to benefit not only yourself, but others too. So you make a vow or a commitment at the start of the session. I am going to meditate for the good of the world, for the benefit of all sentient beings. Through this meditation, may I help others. It's an aspiration. Why is that important? It's important because... If you start 
and also end every session with that moment of compassionate thinking, your practice starts to follow that track. Every session is almost like investing each session into one like one bank account, the, the compassion account, rather than just sitting there randomly doing your meditation, you're giving yourself a reason for doing it. And by planting that seed of compassion at the start and the end of each session, it gives your practice direction. Otherwise, it can become just about yourself. And the more we're practicing from a kind of self-centered me, me, me mentality, I think we fall into those traps that I mentioned earlier, where it becomes like a a self-serving satisfaction aim and you end up actually feeling quite disappointed because you're just trying to get something out of the practice for yourself without a sense of love and compassion for others. So compassion is what takes the practice to another level and also it means that you are you are doing something, so much suffering in this world. We, we're, we're surrounded by pain and suffering. What are we going to do about that? We, we are socially connected. We are all interdependent. We are all linked. And how can we help others? How can we make a difference in the lives of others is if we sort our own minds out and become more stable and less wrapped up in the self, then we'll have more space to benefit others. So it's a good thing. It's a win-win thing. It helps us. It helps others. Do you believe that just setting those intentions actually makes the world better? Well, I think it, what it does is it changes your motivation in life. So then you go out and do good things. You are literally training yourself to be more compassionate. And I was discussing this with a neuroscientist friend of mine, and he said, yeah, what you're doing every time you set that intention is you're training the motor cortex. The motor cortex is that part of the brain that is all about the intention to do something. So he said when he first heard about Buddhist monks meditating on compassion in caves or retreats or whatever, he thought, well, that's really strange because they're not helping anybody. How is that benefiting anybody? And then he looked into it and discovered that what's happening is the motor cortex is becoming stronger and stronger in terms of compassionate intention. And so then you are going to go out and do stuff in the world that is going to benefit others. It all starts with a thought or an intention. Yeah, just like the gym, huh? you're training that part of you that creates the intention to take action. And so that when the time happens, like the times we're in where so many people are going through tough times, you now feel and have the strength. So you not only have the empathy that others are feeling tough times, but you also have the motor skills, the intention ability to actually go and do something about it. I agree. And, and you mentioned empathy, and that can be on its own quite draining, can't it? If you just feel yeah. strong empathy and strong misery because of all the misery of the world, you just drown in that and you feel like overwhelmed by it and nothing you can do about it. But as you mentioned, building the motor skills so you can actually go out and do something to others, do something for others, means that instead of drowning, you're helping those who are drowning. I love that. Let's go through the rest of the list of seven. So we started with posture, then we established compassion, and then there is yeah. feeling the body. Yeah, so step three is to be aware of your body. This seven-step meditation is going to be focusing on the breath eventually, but we're starting with the body. So for a few moments, you feel the contact between your body and the chair, and you feel the ground under your feet and you feel your hands resting on your knees. You're just feeling the, the body in this moment. Without thinking about it or analyzing it or imagining it, you're literally just 
being present with the sensations of your body without judging, just being there. So that's the third step. And then the fourth step is to start feeling the breathing. And you don't need to breathe deeply or differently to how you normally breathe. You're breathing naturally, but you're starting to feel how the body breathes. You feel your chest or your belly expanding and contracting, that kind of gentle rising and falling like a wave. You're just feeling that in your body. These steps are quite short. And then step five is the main practice, and that's when you spend longest on step five, and that is where you focus on the breath coming in and out of your nose, the air flowing up and down your nostrils. That's the actual practice. And the idea of focusing on the nostril, actually, again, is something that I have not been taught before. So I normally, when I focus on my breathing, I focus on my chest, you know, and feeling the air coming in. But you're saying focus specifically on feeling the air touching your nostrils, or if you're breathing through your mouth, then going through your lips. And that's the very pointed point of focus. There. Yeah. And it's not that this is the only way. What you mentioned is also you can do just that. You can focus on your chest or your belly rising and falling. That can be the whole session. But there's many different techniques. And this one which I'm, I'm using, which I find helpful, is to spend most of the session with a very precise focus, the feeling of the air brushing against the skin at the edge of your nostrils as it comes in and out of your nose. Or if you're breathing through your mouth, the air against your lower lip. Because what this does is it builds up a habit of being able to concentrate quite precisely on the present moment. It's a very subtle sensation. To feel your breath moving in and out of your nose without breathing especially deeply means that you're really present. You're really in that sense of one-pointed focus. So it's very good for sharpening your powers of concentration. And yes, as we mentioned earlier, your mind is going to wander a lot. I mean, you're sitting there focusing on your breathing, but within a few seconds, we start thinking about all kinds of other stuff. But that's when the work starts. You just gently come back to the breath again and again, bringing your mind, bringing your focus back again and again to that feeling in your nostrils or your lips. That's where you come back to. It's like a, it's like a ship that floats away but comes back to the anchor again and again. And that's what you spend most time on, yeah. So step five is the longest. That's what you would spend your, the chunk of your session on. And then to exit the session, you do step six, which is body awareness. Again, yeah. Um, again. And step six, just for a few moments. And then step seven, which is, again, the compassion. Take a moment to mentally dedicate your practice to the benefit of all beings. So it's a sense of sharing. You're reminding yourself I'm doing this for the benefit of myself and others. Myself, sure, of course, yes, it's good for me, but also through this practice, may I benefit the world, may I help others. You're making that wish, that aspiration, that goal. And like I said before, starting and ending each session with this, um, should we call it a compassion sandwich? <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. like the bread, the bread at the side of each, uh, at the beginning and end. It means that your practice has a sense of direction and you know why you're doing it. So I'm going to ask you to do me the biggest favor ever. Okay. Okay. Can I have my practice short meditation, you and I today? Okay. And we will see if people on the podcast, I will actually ask everyone listening to us if you can actually just, you know, find a quiet place. It will just be a few moments together and 
who knows, it might be the best few moments of your day. Even if you're in the tube or commuting or wherever you are, try to follow us for a few minutes. It's okay, by the way, for your attention to go away as long as we keep getting it back together. So give me the privilege of having my practice today with you. Thank you. That's great. Okay. So start by establishing a good posture. Sit with a straight back. Your feet are planted flat on the ground. Your hands are resting in your lap, maybe with the palms down on the tops of your knees or tops of your legs. Your back is straight. You don't need to close your eyes. You can leave your eyes just gently open, just looking downwards in front of you, but not looking at anything, just looking into the space in front of you, blinking whenever you need to, of course. So be in that strong and relaxed posture. Now set the intention of love, kindness, and compassion. Take a moment to think, now I'm going to meditate in order to benefit myself and benefit others. Through this, may I bring happiness to the world. May I help others. Make that wish. As my meditation grows and I become less stressed and more happy, this will have an effect on the world around me. I can help others through my own internal peace. So may I develop that for the benefit of all. Okay, now focus on the body. Feel the contact between your body and the chair or whatever you're sitting on. Notice your hands resting on your legs. You can feel the contact between your skin and your clothing. Your hands are resting on your legs. You can feel the fabric of your clothing under your fingers. You don't need to move your fingers around, but there's a sense of touch, sensation. Bring your awareness up to your shoulders. Maybe your shoulders are tight, tense, stressed. That's okay. Just let them be however they are. The sense of total acceptance. Your shoulders are how they are, and you're just being aware of that, feeling that with full attention. The next step is to focus on your breathing. Just breathe naturally. You don't need to change your breathing. Breathe however you breathe. But feel how your breathing makes your body Move in and out a little bit with each breath. Your chest or your belly is just rising and falling gently on each breath. Get into the rhythm of that. Feel the rhythm of that movement in your body.
your mind wanders, but you can gently bring it back to this place of breathing, feeling the breathing. The next step is to focus on your nose. Breathe through your nose if you can, just gently, naturally, no effort, and feel the air traveling in and out of your nostrils. If it's not comfortable, then breathe through your mouth and feel the air against your lips as the air passes in and out of your mouth. So either the nose or the mouth, that's your point of focus. And when the mind drifts, Gently bring it back again and again to this place of focus. Okay, now to conclude the session, focus on your body again. Take your attention to your body and feel the contact between your body and the chair. Now feel your hands resting on your legs. Now feel the ground under your feet. And the last step is compassion again. Take a moment to mentally dedicate your practice to the benefit of all beings, all living beings. May my practice help me to help others. Make that sense of compassionate commitment. And now we're going to end the session, but you're going to try to remember that even when you're not meditating, as you go through your day, you can have little drops of meditation scattered throughout the day without needing to sit down or 
do anything like we just did, but you can feel the ground under your feet when you're standing in line somewhere. Or you can be behind your desk and occasionally just feel the chair under your body. Or you can be washing your hands or brushing your teeth and you can feel the water and the soap in your hands or you can feel the brush against your teeth. So just remember to have little micro moments of meditation many, many times a day. Okay, that's it. That was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Man, I enjoyed it too. <laughs> that felt so good. So I don't know how long this was, but you guys owe us 10 minutes today, like seriously. <laughs> Find out how many more minutes you need to do and then 10 minutes tomorrow. Tukten, I love you dearly. You're a wonderful being. I have a lot of gratitude for you and for, for what you represent, really. And I meet so many people, but there is something so peaceful about you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so infectiously peaceful about you, and I absolutely adore it. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for your knowledge. I'm so grateful for what you do to all of us. Thank you. It was really lovely to meet you and to discuss these things with you and to hear your perspective and about your practice. It's very inspiring. So I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you. I enjoyed our time together very much too. I also enjoyed, very much enjoyed preparing for it. Everyone listening, take my advice. Please seek Tupton out. His work is amazing. And I can't describe why, to be honest, but it's really, it, there is something amazing. And do spend the time. I normally watch all of my YouTube videos on one and a half to 1.75 speed. You're the only one I watched at normal speed. <laughs> and I have no idea why. It was just so peaceful. No stress whatsoever. You know, everyone, please do seek his work out. Please do your practice and, you know, it will really make a massive difference for you. But also please do dedicate your practice to the benefit of all of us. I think uh, all of us, all being, not all of us, just humans. I think there has never been a time where this kind of compassion was needed more. Topton, thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for all of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Take your meditation practice seriously. As you heard today, it doesn't have to be at a specific time of the day. You don't even have to be calm through the whole meditation practice. You don't have to focus on your breathing. Do it daily. Just commit for 10 minutes. It will make a massive difference. And remember, love your thoughts as they take you astray. That's the practice. The practice is stretching your abilities to get back to that state of focus. It's like going to the gym. You're pushing that muscle and pushing that muscle is what really works. Remember to follow me on social media, connect and ask me any question. Tell me what you think about slow-mo. Tell me what I can do better. Recommend guests that I should host that you want to listen to the opinions of. I'm mo underscore gaudet on Instagram mo.gaudet.official on Facebook, mgaudet on Twitter, and mogaudet on LinkedIn. I love you all for listening and for giving me the alibi to record those wonderful conversations. Thank you all very much, and I'll see you next time.